Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that you are here. So we wrapped up Ephesians last week, and these next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on Christmas, but um, I wanted us to do it in a way that helps us just continue to be reminded of these three kind of big truths or principles uh, that we've said, if we were to look just across the board in the Bible, these three truths come out of the Bible, <laughs> the Bible hands these to us over and over and over, and, and basically says this is the type of book the Bible is, and this is how we should study the Bible to best understand what God is saying to us. And a couple months ago when Adam Alm taught for us, the last time that he taught, he recapped these, and we hadn't touched on them like real specifically and explicitly for a while, and it was just a really good thing for him to circle back. And so I wanted to just piggyback off what he did and just remind you again today of these three truths. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them right now because... Spoiler alert, we're going to try to read the whole book of Ruth here in just a minute, because that's what you do at Christmas, right? That's typical. Um, But just really quickly, three truths about the Bible that I think if we really do begin to grasp these and keep them in mind, it helps you as you approach the Bible. The first one here is that the Bible is a spiritual book. And we don't mean like exclusively it's just a spiritual book and nothing else. Like It's a historical book. You can learn a lot about history from the Bible. It's an academic book. People have studied the Bible and stacked up all sorts of knowledge and written all sorts of academic books about the Bible. And it's a literary book. There's all different types of literature in the Bible. You've got poems and prayers and narrative and prophecy and semi-biographies and letters. And so all, all that's in the Bible. But if you don't realize that first and foremost, primarily, the Bible is a spiritual book, you're going to miss the way that God intends to use the Bible in your life. That the Bible was inspired by God, that his Holy Spirit inspired these authors of the individual books to write the Bible, and the Bible's focus primarily is a spiritual focus, that you would know God, the great spiritual being who is above all and created all, that all things come from him and exist in him, and that to really understand the deepest truths of the Bible, to get beyond just historical facts and and intellectual understanding and a literary appreciation and academic knowledge, that deeper than all of that, there has to be a spiritual work of God in our hearts for us to really see with spiritual eyes what God is teaching us about himself, for us to hear the words of the Bible, not just with physical ears, but to hear them with spiritual ears that really understand the truth that God is teaching, that we need the spiritual work of God. We need the Holy Spirit to come and teach our hearts and our minds in a way that only he can, that it drives us to a dependence on him. So that if we approach it just from human abilities and human effort and human understanding, human explanation, you'll get facts, you'll get information, you'll know more but you won't encounter God in the deep spiritual way that he intends. So the Bible is a spiritual book, and again, we could spend, and maybe we will sometime in the new year, like a whole year looking at, here's all the places we see this in the Bible. But for now, just that's truth one. Truth two, the Bible is one connected story. And I feel like this one is really easy for us to overlook or miss or not understand, because a lot of us, the way that we've generally studied the Bible, I don't know if this is always the case, but for a lot of us, you know, we've got a devotional that pulls out a couple of verses a day. Or we read a chapter here, a chapter there, and we stop. Or we'll read you know, the life of David, or this, or that. And there's so many different stories 
in the Bible, little sections of the Bible, and even 66 different books in the Bible, that it's really easy for us to separate all of those and think, yeah, here's a story about David. Here's a story about Abraham. Here's a story about Moses. Here's a story about Noah. Here's the stories about Jesus. And here's Matthew writing you know, the biography of Jesus, and Luke writing the biography of Jesus, and Mark, and then here's these letters that Paul wrote to churches, and he wrote this letter to this church, and this letter to that church, and it's easier for us to not see that the whole thing is connected in one big story. It really isn't, hey, there's 66 different books. There's one book, if you wanted to think of it that way, with 66 really big chapters, or it's not, hey, there's all these different individual stories. It's there's one story, and there's pieces The story of Abraham is part of this bigger story. The story of Moses is part of this bigger story. The story of Adam and Eve and Joseph and Daniel and David, fill in the blanks, it's all part of a bigger story. And until we see how those pieces fit in the bigger story, we can't ever fully understand what each of those little stories are about. It's sort of like, and this isn't perfect, but it's the one that comes to mind for me. I've told you before that the first movie that I ever got to see in the theater was Return of the Jedi which, if you're familiar with Star Wars, there's now nine movies, right? Nine episodes of Star Wars. I'm talking about the the original, you know, not all the spinoffs and all the Disney's making a billion dollars every year kind of thing. Just, like, the first nine. But the weird thing is, four through six got released first. So one through three wasn't out, six through nine. But what's even weirder for me is because when I was born, I saw six first. So the first Star Wars movie I saw was six. And listen, that thing by itself was fabulous. Like, I loved it. I wanted to be Luke Skywalker. I would put my arm, like, in my sleeve and climb up the... We had a TV antenna outside our house. I would fall off backwards, really. Like, it was the 80s. You could do stuff like that. Nobody cared. Um, And so just that one story, Return of the Jedi, was, was great. But I didn't know anything about anything when I watched it. Like... This little green guy appears at the end. I don't know who that is. Like, I hadn't seen Empire Strikes Back yet. I didn't know who Yoda was. Luke's got this mechanical hand. I don't know why. I don't know that Darth had cut his hand off the, the movie before. And so then I go back and I watch one and or, <laughs> four and five, which was one and two to me. But I watch four and five, and all these pieces make more sense. Now, I could get all kinds of stuff out of six by itself. But 4, 5, and 6 told a bigger story. Then 20 years later, when 1, 2, and 3 comes out, you've got a deeper appreciation for who Obi-Wan is and for why Anakin is who he is and why he turns into Darth and, all these, and who Luke and Leia are and how they end up where they end up. And then 7, 8, and 9 comes out just you know, a few years ago, and it wraps up the whole story, and there's things you know, all the way back from the beginning. Like You could watch 9 by itself and understand a lot of things, but there's all sorts of details you'll miss if you haven't seen 1 through 8. For those of you who don't watch Star Wars, you don't have to go watch Star Wars to understand this. Pick some other story, you know, movie with multiple episodes, and you get what I mean. The Bible is the same way. Like you can come and just read the Gospel of John and know Jesus, and God will reveal Jesus to you and teach you all sorts of things about himself. But when you see the Gospel of John set in the context of Genesis 1, John 1 sounds different. You know, and you can come and you can read the, the story about Jesus' temptation in the desert you know, in uh, Matthew 4 or in Luke 3, and, and you're going to learn a lot about who Jesus is. 
But when you see that set in the context of Satan tempting Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, there's a new depth to it. And there's, there are details and meaning and significance that the entire Bible informs the entire Bible. The entire Bible helps us know how to interpret the entire Bible. And to see that it's all connected, the main way that you see it's connected, our third truth here, is that the Bible's about God. First and foremost, primarily, the Bible's not about Adam and Eve. The Bible's not about Noah, David, Moses, whoever. Like the, the human characters aren't the primary focus. The Bible's not about Israel. It's not a history book about ancient Israel. The Bible's not about the Roman Empire. All those people and places are characters and places in the big story, but the whole thing is about God. Like the only character who is there from start to finish is God. God's there, nothing else is. God makes everything. Here's Adam and Eve for a few chapters. God's there. They're off the scene now. God's still there. Here's Noah. God's there. Noah's off the scene now. God's still there. Here's Abraham. God's still there. Abraham's off the scene now. God's still there. Here's uh, Isaac. God's still there. Isaac's off the scene now. God's still there. Here's Jacob and Esau. God's still there. Jacob and Esau are off the scene now. God's still there. Here's Joseph. God's still there. The whole way through. All the way through. And so if you come and you read it just about these individual people, and especially the way we sometimes do it, okay, the, the story's about Joseph, and the point's that I've got to be like Joseph. That's not what it's about. You know, the story's about David, and I've got to be like David. That's not what it's about. The story's about God. And you've got to see who God is. And you've got to see how who God is affects the whole story and that all of Joseph's hope is because of who God is and all of David's hope is because of who God is and everything that happens in the story is ultimately because of who God is because if you read it, if you read the Bible, like David's stories about David and Joseph's stories about Joseph and not about God, you're going to come to your life. I almost guarantee it because we already do this anyway, but if we have the Bible and our religion reinforcing it, there's almost no hope for us to get out of it. You will come to your life like your life's about you. And it's not. Your life is part of this story that God is telling in all of history. And the whole thing's about him. And just as much, just as much as David's life is about God, your life is about God. And just as much as God had a place for David and a role for David and a purpose for David in telling this story about God, God has a place for you and a purpose for you and a role for you in telling this story about God that you fit in to one of these little chapters, just like all those characters in the Bible, and just like God was there in all of them, God is here in your chapter. God is here in your life. But you've got to see that your life is about God. And then I added this in parentheses, because the Bible's about God is a great sentence there. But really, if we want to be more specific, the main thing God does in the Bible is the Bible is about God revealing himself in Jesus. That God makes himself known. That he comes and says, I want you to know me, and the only way you're ever going to know me is if I tell you who I am, if I show you who I am, if I reveal myself to you, and here's how I'm going to do it, through Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And because of that, and this is, I'm, I'm getting to Ruth here, when we realize that the whole Bible is one story about God revealing himself in Jesus, I'm going to suggest to you that the whole Bible, when we see it the right way, is the Christmas story. The whole Bible is God sending Jesus so that we can know God, so that we can be right with God. And so it really should be the case that we could stand up here and be like, Christmas story this year, Genesis 1 through 3, and that wouldn't be weird. 
Christmas story this year, the Passover in Exodus, and that's not weird. Christmas story this year, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus, and that's not weird. Christmas story, the book of Ruth, and that's not weird. Christmas story, God raises up this young leader named Joshua. The Lord saves and he takes his people into the promised land and fulfills all God's promises to his people. That's the Christmas story, and that's not weird. But that all of that is pointing forward to Jesus. And you come to the New Testament and the gospel, certainly, Christmas story, God revealing himself in Jesus. But everything after that is explanation of what God has done. Like all the letters Paul writes, just keeps pointing back. Here's what God's shown. Here's what God's done. Here's who God is in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. All of, the whole Bible is the Christmas story. And so I really wanted to, to stress that in a way this year where we would say, when we read the book of Ruth this morning, I want you to see the Christmas story in it. I want you to see God revealing himself in Jesus. I want you to see this as part of the big story. And so I know, look, I know that reading four chapters of Ruth is not like, I'm violating some typical social contracts that we have in most North American churches on Sunday mornings, right? And so I'm asking for your grace and understanding to stick with me through four chapters. And then also, to be honest, like the song we sang right before we got up here, I'm not going to apologize that we're going to read more of God's words and have less of mine and yours this morning. I think it could be a really good thing. But you, can't, you just can't break up Ruth. Like it, it goes together. And it goes together with the whole thing. So we are going to read all four chapters. If you will stick with me, I would really appreciate it. I do want to give you a few minutes if there are things that really stand out, like we usually, if you say, here's some truths about God I'm seeing. And then in the interest of time, I've tried to type stuff out today, so you don't have to wait for me to write on my part. So when we get to that, I think we can move a little bit faster. And then also in your notes, you'll see that I put a whole lot more cross-references. We're going to cover a whole lot of ground because I want us to see that the Bible is one continuous story. And... There wasn't room to put all that in the notes, and so Justin put a QR code in there. If you scan that with your phone, uh, it'll pop up all those verses on your phone right now if that's helpful to you. But you've got them all on there. I've got them all on the iPad, so it'll be on the screen um, if it helps you. So we're going to jump in, and we'll see how it goes. I am asking you to stick with me. I'm, to be honest, as I've worked on this this week, I'm really excited about some of the things that I thought like God has shown me, and I, I hope that I do an adequate job of helping you see them. And so in that direction, we're going to pray right now that I won't be the one doing it, but that God would really open our eyes this morning and that we could really be, I think in a sense, in awe that for thousands and thousands of years, he has told the exact same story to us over and over and over. And he said, I'm going to use all of history to help you know me. I'm going to use all of history to show you who I am in Jesus. And so I hope we see that a little bit this morning. So if you will pray that with me right now, we'll jump into the actual text. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Please teach us right now by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word so that we will see you and know you more than we ever have. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Ruth, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, and I went ahead and marked that, judges, because we're going to come back to it later, and I didn't want to skip over it because it's hard to scroll four chapters. So just keep in mind that Ruth is happening during the time of judges. And you've got a book in the Old Testament, which actually comes right before Ruth, called Judges. So 
In the day when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And I marked that. Just, so the setting initially here is that they've left Israel, the promised land, where God had called them and sent them, and the land God had given to them during this famine. They leave there, and they go to Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. So these Israelite boys marry Moabite girls. Just keep that in mind as well. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Ruth is who the book's named after. So Ruth is a Moabite woman who marries an Israelite boy. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old, old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? 
And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, we're halfway there. Everybody good? That's the first two chapters. You see where we are so far? All right. Chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. 
Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Chapter 4. We're 75% of the way there. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. 
Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And that's the end of the book of Ruth and a completely normal way to end a book, isn't it? Here's a genealogy that talks about people we haven't even gotten to yet. We're done. Conclusion. The end. We can talk about that in a minute. Your turn first. Thank you for sitting and listening patiently. What's this teach us about God? What are things that you heard? And I'm going to really try to just let you say them and I'll write them down because I know we're, we're on a time crunch for what we got left. So what stands out to you? Humanity left on their own is, and you said unmitigated, unmitigated mess, but God redeems it in a way, I'm just going to say no human could. And, and yeah, we're hitting a couple of really big things right here. Um, just keep this truth in mind, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. What else? What else do you want to say? Truths about God, things that stand out to you from this Christmas story in Ruth. And I think you can hear a lot of the Christmas story there, especially at the end. But anything else that you want to throw out there? God sees us in a way we can't see ourselves. Carol, you want to tell us what you've got in mind there? Bitter, yeah. Yeah, after everything that happens to her on the outside, you know, her husband dies, both of her sons die, she has nothing left. You know, in, in that culture in that day, she has no way now to support herself, no claim on her own land. And, and that's what's going on here with the Redeemer thing. Let's just throw this note of ex- explanation in real quickly here, is that God set up a system within Israel of if, if your husband dies, you know, you're widowed, and you also have no sons to take over the land and to provide for the family and to keep the family name going, that this land belongs to this family in this name, the way to keep that family from losing what was given to them when they entered the promised land and to keep the family name going was the next closest relative was supposed to marry the widow, but that that part of the family, the sons that they had, wouldn't technically be his. They would still belong to the dead man. Like you're building up his family in his death. You're coming in and rescuing the widow, rescuing the family, and rescuing the land. And, and, and so that's what happens here at the end when the guy's like, oh yeah, I'd love to have that piece of land. You know, yeah, sure, I'll buy that land. That's worth it to me. And then Boaz is like, well, you also get the widow. And you've got to build up the family for them. And he's like, no, 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 that costs too much. You know, I, I don't want to take on that burden and that debt. That's not worth it to me, so don't give me the land. And Boaz says, well, I'll take it all on. 
and I'll build this up in there. And so that's also why they're saying, this is Naomi's child. You know, when, when they said Naomi's been given a child because of the family, like her sons were gone, and now Boaz is building up the family that was supposed to be for her and Elimelech. And so what's interesting here with what Carol's saying is that Naomi loses everything. And she says, call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter because of what's happened to me. But God never stops calling her Naomi. God doesn't just look at the circumstances. He sees who she is, and he sees what he has in mind for her. He sees what's coming. And, and ultimately, when he finishes telling his story, and he redeems the whole thing, she is who God always said she was, and not who she thought she was herself. That God sees us in a way we can't see ourselves. What else stands out to you? God has never said oops. Oops, we need an S. Oops, we need an S. Yeah, God doesn't make mistakes even when your whole life looks like it's falling apart. Even when it looks like it's all gone and it's all done and it's all in shambles and, and there's, no, there's no way to put this back together. And then you find out that God has a plan, not just where it's like, okay, yeah, you've gone through this bad stuff, here's going to be some good stuff later, but this bad stuff is key and central and instrumental to what he's doing to bring about the good stuff. That the good stuff is going to be better than it could have been otherwise because of the way that he works the bad stuff into it. That he's sovereign over all of it. He's, he's wise enough to handle all of it. And he's good enough and gracious enough and powerful enough to redeem all of it. But listen, like, and it may take a while for it to play out. Like, you may not see it for years. <laughs> and it may look really dark and really desperate. And there may be nothing from a human perspective where you could imagine, how? How could he ever work this out? He's working this out. What else? One more really burning on your mind or in your heart, truth about God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, let's, let's build on that. And, and, and thanks for saying that you feel like you don't understand the Bible really well. I feel like all of us, maybe for most of our life, fall in that category. I think that is a normal thing to pick up the Bible and be like, and even like, if you've been exposed to the Bible and exposed to Christianity and you think, I feel like I'm supposed to read this and I want to read this and I want to know what it means and I don't get it. And that is so core to what I hope we're doing each week here, is saying, hey, I think this is a way that we can listen to what God has said that helps us get it. And, and that is asking this big question, wherever you are, all the confusing stuff to kind of toss it out and say, what does this teach about God? You know, and that if we walk away with a truth about God or three truths about God, whatever it is, that we are understanding the main thing he is saying from the Bible. So that being huge, and then the other piece being huge of saying, and we can't do that on our own, that it's got to be a dependence on God, that we would be, it wouldn't be religious ritual for us to pray. We're praying because we really need God's help, and we really believe that he gives it. So we're going to ask God to reveal himself, 
And then we're going to focus on God in that way. Where we're saying, what's this teach about God? And not getting distracted by all the secondary stuff. And then we're going to believe that he's, as he reveals himself that he wants to say something to our hearts right now. And so with Ruth here, you're right. And this te- connects to what I think is the central thing in the whole book. That Ruth is an outsider. She's not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. And maybe you do know just how much of an outsider she is, but maybe you don't yet. So we're going to talk about it in just a minute. But she's an outsider, and she doesn't really know the ways of Israel, and so she doesn't understand. She doesn't get it. And so one of the truths we could say is God takes care of you even when you don't understand. Like, God understands. He's got a plan. He's got promises in place that were set up thousands, like, well, hang on, when would this be? This would be 1100 B.C. So Abraham is about 900 years before that. Like he had made promises to Abraham that he is still fulfilling in the book of Ruth. And so God understands. He knows what's going on. He knows what's already happened. He knows what he said. He knows what's coming. He knows how he's going to bring it about. And so Ruth's lack of understanding doesn't matter. And then also that God blesses her abundantly and graciously beyond anything that would ever fit with what she's done or what she deserves, but even more beyond what she understands. And, and again, just keep all that in mind because we're going to, like, what we just saw in the book of Ruth is like this much of what God actually does. <laughs> like, when we already feel like he's done so much for her, well, he does so much more when we connect it to the whole story. So let's try to do that right now. Let's, let's see if if this is helpful in seeing, oh, the Bible really is one big continuous story. So some of the other verses I've put on here. In Genesis 19, we get the initial story of where the Moabites come from. So this is the, the first book of the Bible. And really early on here, this is still during Abraham's life, which Abraham ends up becoming the father of the Jews. So the Israelites come from Abraham. And he's got a nephew named Lot. And the Moabites come from Lot. So same time frame as Abraham, if that helps you. Here's the story. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Skipping down to verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites to this day. I don't know, humanly speaking, if you can get a worse start than that. That's where the Moabites come from. That's their history. Is Lot's wife dies when she looks back at Sodom and Gomorrah. The daughter's don't have husbands, they're alone, they don't have any hope that God's going to... Kind of the opposite of Ruth right here. I have no hope that God's going to provide for me. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Here's what I come up with. Let's get dad drunk, and this is how we'll build our family. So just imagine that being your history, and everybody knows that story. That's where the Moabites come from. Well, now the story moves forward. So that's, again, around 2000 B.C. The story moves forward. Now we've got Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Like this is after the Exodus, and now they're in the desert. They're free from slavery, but they haven't gotten to the promised land yet. So this is around 1500 BC. Here's our next encounter with the Moabites. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. 
Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammon to call him, saying, Behold, a people's come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they're too mighty for me. So, now remember, the Israelites come from Abraham. The Moabites come from Lot, his nephew. So they're related. Like this is, These are pretty close family. The Israelites have come out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the desert. They've got nothing. And instead of the Moabites, their family who were still in the land, saying, hey, let's help them. Let's take care of them. Let's welcome them in. The king of Moab says, let's find a prophet to curse them so that they don't take any of our stuff. You see, the greed, the selfishness, the self-centeredness of Moab, and the willingness to pronounce a curse on God's people. So the first story about Moabites, not good. Second story about the Moabites, not good. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now, if you know that story, God won't let uh, Balaam curse them. Every time he opens his mouth to speak a curse against them, God puts a blessing in his mouth. And it's the same story where God even makes the donkey talk to Balaam, if you remember that story. And he's basically saying, hey, a donkey is a better instrument for my message than you are. <laughs> but that's second story of the Moabites. Third story with the Moabites. So cursing them doesn't work. Here's the next strategy, Numbers 25. While Israel was staying in the Acacia Grove, the people began to have sexual relations with the women of Moab. The women invited them to the sacrifices for their gods. So now we've got sexual sin and idolatry. And the people ate and bowed in worship to their gods. So Israel aligned itself with Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So they couldn't curse them with their false gods, but they tempted them to worship their false gods. So Moab pulls Israel away from God and away from true worship to the true God. That's their third appearance. And just as a note, by the way, all these Hebrew names and places and people, I don't know how to pronounce them. Like, I just keep going, and you think I know because I keep going. If that is one of the things that is a, like a barrier for you when you're studying the Old Testament, make up like nicknames. Like, it, it, I mean, Boaz, I know we can say that, but you want to call him Bo? Fine. We were watching the star, the Christmas movie the other day, and Bo's the donkey, and Ruth is the sheep, and Dave is the bird. And you know, it's Boaz and Ruth and David. Like, it's really funny and smart, but that's fine. Bo and Dave. So, you know, up here, Balak, that can be B1, and Balaam, B2. It's fine. Okay, it's perfectly fine, because that's not the main point, right? If you don't know Balaam and you know God, we're good. All right, so don't get hung up on that and don't think that, well, he's so smart he can pronounce those names. Of course he understands the Bible. I don't know what those names are, all right? I mean, I could Google it and listen to the pronunciation, but then I'm like, how does that guy know what it was? This was 4,000 years ago. You don't know how they said that? It's like, just go to eastern Kentucky where I grew up and you can't understand what my cousins say now. I would have to translate for you. And they're speaking our language. Like you can write something down back. Like, I know how that's said. No, you don't. Okay, so just don't get caught up in that. All right. <laughs> yeah, my girls are teaching me sus and slay queen, and, all, and I'm just like, 
what? We grew up, and we're in the same house, and I don't know what they're saying. All right, sorry. Next time we get a reference to the Moabites, now this becomes really significant. This is Deuteronomy. Israel's about to go into the promised land. And this is Moses, like his last instructions from God to Israel. Okay? So just keep in mind, this is what God says about the Moabites and the Ammonites, which Moab was Lot's older daughter, Ammonites are Lot's younger daughter, so all of them coming from Lot. Deuteronomy 23, instructions about the tabernacle or the temple, you know, the place of worship where God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Can't come in. Can't come into the temple. You can't come in before the presence of God. You can't be there for these sacrifices and this worship. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. And so that's God saying, the Moabites can't come into my temple. The Moabites can't come into my presence. The Moabites, according to like the, the instruction that God gives to Israel is, you can't have anything to do with the Moabites. That's how terrible they are. That's how awful they are. That's how far gone they are. That's how rejected they are. Okay? Now, one more verse before we get into trying to pull it all together. So I told you, we, Ruth during the book of Judges, during the time of the Judges, and if you've, if you've never read Judges and it would be helpful to you, there's a real quick cycle to know that God's people, just like we saw them do with the Moabites, that they fall into idolatry over and over and over. They worship false gods, they turn away from God. And to get their attention, God sends some kind of conqueror. The Philistines are the one, you may know that name. But another, another people group, another nation that comes in, conquers them, makes them slaves or makes them pay tribute, oppresses them for 20, 30, sometimes 40 years, till finally... God's people, in the pain of being conquered, cry out to God. That God uses this terrible thing to have them stop crying out to idols that can't rescue them, and they cry out to the true God who can. And every single time, they cry out to God for something they've done wrong, suffering they've brought on themselves, they're completely guilty, they cry out to God, and God sends what the book calls a judge to rescue them. Judge, a leader. Like, they don't have kings yet, but it's almost the position of a king and so the judge rescues them, and then they've got this period where they're free again, and they're blessed again, and there's abundance and prosperity again, until they do the exact same thing again. And the book of Judges, it does this over and over and over, except it doesn't just do this. If you could like imagine, oh, I dropped my pen. If you could imagine a downward spiral where it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, that's what actually goes like first cycle, second cycle, third cycle. Until finally, like your judges, who are supposed to be the ones sent by God, are just as wretched as anybody. Like Gideon, Gideon is a weak coward who just barely believes God. And then as soon as they get delivered, Gideon makes the idol they start worshiping. And he's the judge. Samson, like do you know the story of Samson? Samson is as pagan as they get. And God still uses him to rest, but, but it's just this downward spiral until this is, this is the very last verse in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's what's going on in Israel. Like they're worshiping false gods. They don't want anything to do with God except when they're in a lot of trouble and they want God to rescue them then. And they're all doing whatever they want. 
And if you read like the last three chapters of Judges this week, leading into Ruth, like you'll get a picture of just how dark and nasty and terrible it really is. Like it's really bad. We don't have time to read it. And just, it's just uh, the worst things you can imagine are going on in Israel. That's when the book of Ruth happens, all right? So here's where I want us to bring it all together now. Remember that Ruth's a Moabite. Remember all the things we just read about the Moabites their nasty history, their, their just continual repeated sin against God's people, their attempts to pull God's people away from God, and then they've been banned from the temple, from the presence of God. And God takes a Moabite woman and unites her to an Israelite man. And then I said, don't forget this, the way that he ends the book. Anytime that they end a book in some weird way, you know, why in the world is the genealogy there? And especially when they repeat it, like right here, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. He's like, okay, you made your point. Now he turns right around. He's like, here's the generations that come, and we get to the end. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Period. I'm done. I made my point. And you're like, what's your point? The point is that David comes from Ruth. And you know who David is, right? He's the greatest king in the history of Israel. And so God takes this Moabite woman who's not even allowed to come into the temple, who's completely rejected by God's people on God's orders, and God says, I will take her and I will accept her and I will make her part of my people. And not just while I make her part of my people, I will give her the most significant role out of all the families in all of Israel that David, the king, will come from her. And so this first truth I pulled out here, God takes people who aren't even allowed in his presence and makes them part of his people. He says, he's taking somebody who's been banned from his presence, and he grabs her and says, I'll unite you to my people by marriage, and you'll be part of my people. Right? They're too dirty for the temple, but they're not too dirty for God. Like they don't deserve to even walk into the temple. And God says, but you'll still be mine. You'll be part of my people. You'll be part of my plan. You'll be part of my royal family. How does he do it? The Redeemer, and I hope you heard that word, redeem, redeems, redeemed, Redeemer, over and over and over in those last couple of chapters. The Redeemer pays the price for worthless outcasts, and they become part of the royal family. That's who she, she's an outcast. She's rejected. She has no place in Israel. Israelites are under instructions and commands from God not to accept her. That's how outcast she is. And she's worthless. She has no value. She's a debt to anybody who takes her on. The first guy's like, no, if i got to marry her and provide for her and provide for her family and part of what I own has to go to build up her family, I don't want that. It's too costly. A worthless outcast. And the Redeemer comes and says, I'll pay for her. I want her. Connect her to me. Make her part of my family. The Redeemer pays the price for worthless outcasts. And not just they become part of his family, they become part of the royal family. Like she's a queen in reverse, right? She's the, the great grandmother of King David. This is God taking somebody who's less than nobody, like not just a nobody. A rejected, outcast nobody. 
and saying, I am setting you in the royal family and the greatest king in the entire Old Testament will come from you. God doesn't just accept Ruth as part of his people. God makes her the great, great, great grandmother of God's own son. This is the next step. You realize we've just gone to David so far, but you come to the Christmas story in Matthew 1, you get another genealogy. Ruth ends with one. Matthew starts with one. I'm I'm not making it up when I tell you this is one story and it's all connected. And they grab the same genealogy. Where Ruth lets up, the, the next section of Matthew's genealogy picks up. He's like David to Solomon to Rehoboam, and he keeps going to da, to da, to da, to Jesus. And so it's not just that David comes from Ruth, which is great. Jesus comes from Ruth. God's own son, the king of kings, comes from The Moabite, who's not even supposed to be in the temple, is the great, 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 and I couldn't say them all, grandmother of Jesus the Messiah, the promised one, the one that God always said that he was going to say, the, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the height of everything God does, not just in the Old Testament, not just in Israel, but everything God does in all of history, in the entire world, and he picks Ruth. The most rejected the most outcast, the most worthless, the one who has no place in God's people. And he says, Jesus will come from you. God doesn't just accept Ruth as part of his people. God makes her the great, great, great grandmother of God's own son. How does he do it? Just hear this again. How could he do that? When when he has commanded that they not be accepted, he unites her with his people. That's how he does it. The Moabites aren't allowed in God's presence. But the Israelites are. And so God takes a Moabite and joins her to an Israelite. Like when Boaz redeems her and makes her his wife and makes his family her family, she's not a Moabite anymore. She's an Israelite. Like he's building up an Israelite family for Elimelech and Naomi. He's building up an Israelite family with Israelite land that was promised to Israel by God, and all of their children together are part of that Israelite family. And so God says, yeah, as a Moabite, you're rejected, but I'm going to unite you legally to an Israelite and make you an Israelite. And then you'll be accepted. You'll be accepted because of your Redeemer. You'll be accepted because you're connected to one who is accepted by me. And this is where it all turns for us. I'm, I'm sure you see it by now. Sinners like you and me could never be allowed in God's presence. We are the Moabites. We are Ruth. We've got no access to the Holy of Holies. No claim to ever come into the temple. Sinners like you and me could never be allowed in God's presence. But Jesus is. He has access to the Father. He has access to the Holy of Holies. And so God takes sinners like us And he unites us with his son. And he says, yeah, you weren't welcome. You couldn't come in. You had no access. But I will unite you legally. I will make a legal declaration that you are one with Jesus, united with Jesus. I will accept you in Jesus. And because Jesus can come in, you can come in with him. You can come in in him. Everything that I promised to Jesus becomes yours if you're one with Jesus. So then truths about God to build on here, and I write them down if you want, or I may go kind of fast, but as you put the whole story together here, 
this redeemer theme. You know, the redeem is to buy back, right? to, to pay the price. This is Boaz saying, I'm willing to pay the price and redeem her. I'm going to redeem her out of all the, the loss and the suffering and the worthless condition that she's in. I'm going to redeem her situation, and I'm going to provide for her. I'm going to use all, take all of this that's there, and I'm going to turn it into something good. God redeems scandals in his story. Find a bigger scandal for me than Lot and his daughters. But do you know what? If you don't have the scandal of Lot and his daughters, you don't get the story of God's grace in using Ruth. Do you see that? Like, do you see how the darkness becomes the backdrop on which God shows the light of his grace and mercy? Like, he... He has to have a family that outcast and that ostracized and that scandalous if he wants to give you the message, I accept outcast, ostracized, scandalous people. It's how he shows the depth of his grace. It's how he shows the strength of his mercy. It's how he shows how committed he is to redeeming everything in your life. He can choose anybody he wants. He said, I'm going to choose the absolute worst you can think of. The biggest scandal you can think of. I want that to be part of my son's genealogy. He redeems scandals in his story. God redeems outcasts in his story. We've hammered just how outcast Ruth really was as a Moabite. God redeems people who are rejected in his story. She's already rejected as a Moabite. But even more. She shows up now, and here she is in Israel, and everybody knows all the great things she's done. And this first guy looks at her and is like, I don't want that. I want this land, but I don't want her. And if i got to take her with the land, I'll give up the land not to have her. But the Redeemer says, I want her. Yeah, she's rejected by other people, but she's accepted by the Redeemer. God redeems people no one else thinks are worth it in his story. Nobody else looks at Ruth and says she's worth it. Like nobody else looks at Ruth and even says, I want her to be part of our people. Nobody else looks at Ruth and says, I want to marry her. Certainly nobody else looks at Ruth and says, I want to take on this debt and have to build up her family, except the Redeemer. Like in Boaz, you get this picture of what God is like toward us, of what Jesus is like toward us. God redeems people no one else thinks are worth it in his story. And then God redeems suffering and loss in his story. There's a famine they leave home, and then there's a death, and another death, and another death. A husband dead, two sons dead. Like desperation on Naomi's part. All kinds of suffering and loss and darkness and sadness. And God says, I'm going to take all of it. And I'm going to mix all those ingredients together. And out of that comes my story of redemption. All of, like, all of that is how Ruth ends up in Israel and ends up the great-grandmother of David and the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. All of that is why you get to hear this morning that God redeems scandals and God redeems outcasts and God redeems rejects because of the suffering and loss that you read about in chapter 1 in Ruth. All it sets the stage for what he's doing later. And so I just want to tell you, I don't know, I don't know the time frame for your life. Sometimes, sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it is so long. Sometimes it may be on the other side of this life, but I can tell you this, when God is at work in Jesus, like when you are trusting him and you're united to Jesus, suffering and loss is never the last word of your story. And it may be dark and it may be bad, and I'm not minimizing that 
at all. Like it may be really, really hard, and you may say, the Lord's hand is against me, and I am bitter, and he's taken, I left full, and I've come back empty. You may be able to say everything that Naomi says in this story. Just know that's not the end of the story. He's not done. He's not done with your suffering. He's not done with your loss. He's not done with your bitterness. He's going to redeem it all in Jesus. During the darkest times of sin and suffering, God is still working in Jesus. And the reason I included sin right there is we've talked about Lot's sin with his daughters and, and the Moabite sin. We see that piece. But also, God had given the Israelites the promised land and called them to be there. And I think we've got an element of sin when there's a famine, Elimelech and Naomi, we're gone. We don't trust God to provide for us in this land. We're going to take care of ourselves. Let's go to Moab. Let's go to the place God told, God told us to never interact with them, but we would rather have food there than be hungry with God's people. And so you've got the sin of leaving the land God's called them to, not trusting God to provide. Then they get there, and the two sons are like, hey, we're not waiting for God to take us back home. Give us wives. And we know God forbid them. Give us wives here. And God uses all of that. It's wrong. The, su the suffering's terrible, and the sin's wrong. And, and we're not changing that. But those are the type of ingredients that God takes. And he works into his purpose and his plan, and he shows his grace all the more, and he shows his wisdom all the more. He shows who he, this is God revealing himself. He did this in Ruth's life so that you will know this is who he is in your life. He wants you to know him. The whole story is about him, and this is what he says about himself that he redeems scandals and he redeems outcasts and he redeems rejects and he redeems worthless people and he redeems suffering and loss and he redeems sin and he's always working in Jesus. When it's the time of the judges and it looks as dark as possible and you look out at a land where everybody's doing what they want in their own eyes, God's still keeping his promises. When his people are completely unfaithful to him, God's still faithful to his people. He's still raising up the great King David to lead them, and he's raising up the greatest King Jesus to save them. When they're in the middle of turning away from him over and over and over in the book of Judges, that's what he's doing. That's why your hope's in him and not in anybody in this world, including yourself. God redeems suffering and loss in his story. During the darkest times of sin and suffering, God is still working in Jesus. I know we're getting close on time. I'm going to go really fast right here as we wrap up, okay? If you want to go back and listen later and take notes, it'll be on the website, and it'll be the, the live streams always posted on YouTube. I just want you to see the connection to the New Testament. Just as fast as we can. Those other New Testament verses, I'm just going to read them, and I'm going to mark redeem or redeemer every time. There was 18 of them, and I only used eight, so you can be thankful for that. But listen, if you think, yeah, this is, just, this is just one little story in the Old Testament, that's great that you see all that stuff there. I want you to see this one little story about Ruth, these four chapters, how huge, Boaz redeeming Ruth, how huge it becomes in the New Testament. And you want Christmas, Galatians 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The people who weren't part of his family, he redeems them and makes them part of his family. The Moabite who wasn't part of his family, Boaz redeems her and makes her part of his family. This is what God does for us 
when he sends Jesus at Christmas. This is the point to redeem us and make us part of his family. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so now he goes back even farther than Ruth to Abraham, back to the 2,000 years before Jesus' story, and says, this promise God made to Abraham, this is why Jesus redeemed you, this is why he paid the price for you, so that you can receive this promise. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not part of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, holy, the holy of holies, where the, where the Moabites were never welcomed. Jesus goes in, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That he goes into the place where you're not welcome. By his own blood, he pays the price for you, and now you're welcome into the presence of God. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold. That's not what he bought you with, because that's not valuable enough. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, God bought you with Jesus' blood. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, this redemption that buys our forgiveness, washes away our sins, according to the riches of his grace, not worldly wealth, not saying, yeah, I'll take part of what I own and my land and my money, and I'll let you, no, I'll take my own son and his blood and his life, and I'll use that to buy you and make you part of my family. Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Right? United to Jesus the way that Ruth was united to Boaz in marriage. The bride of Christ, married to Jesus, one with him. And being in him now, he becomes for you wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That you were in the darkest time and the darkest place imaginable. Just like Ruth. And God reached down and grabbed you and pulled you out of this kingdom that was not his people and not welcome to be his people. And he transferred you into his kingdom and united you to his son. And he redeems you, and he forgives you, and he makes you his own. And so where are we in today? Like you see all this with Boaz and Ruth, but again, it's not about Boaz and Ruth. So we don't want to stop there. That when you see the way that God teaches this story of redemption through Boaz, make sure you take the next step and you say, as great as Boaz is in the story, Jesus is the better Boaz. Everything that God does through Boaz on this level, God does through Jesus on this level. Jesus is the better Boaz. Jesus is the better Redeemer. And here's just a few examples and we're done. Boaz redeemed a woman from her ancestor's sin in the distant past. He rescued her from being a Moabite and, and all the, the scandal that came with that and made her an Israelite. So he redeemed her from her ancestor's sin in the distant past. Jesus redeems you and me and all his people from all our sins now and forever. Boaz made Ruth part of his family. 
Jesus makes all of his people part of God's family. Boaz shared the riches of his wealth. Jesus shares the riches of his grace. Boaz redeemed a physical inheritance. Jesus redeems our spiritual inheritance. Boaz purchased redemption for this lifetime with worldly wealth. Jesus purchases redemption for all eternity with his own blood. Boaz was the great-grandfather of King David, but Jesus is the Son of God and the King of kings. And so when you look to Boaz and you look to Ruth and you see this story, it's a great story. And Boaz reflects God and he reflects Jesus. He does, but he's not Jesus. Jesus is greater. Jesus is the real thing. Boaz is a shadow and a whisper and a reminder. It's God saying, I'm going to speak through all these little stories to tell you the story. I want you to hear the big story, his story. And so the very last thing I want to say to you is, if that's the way that God uses all the little stories, that's the way God wants to use your story. How does God want you to be Boaz in somebody's life? Who needs to be redeemed? Who's an outcast, a reject, broken, worthless in people's eyes that you need to come and you need to say, this is how God treats people like that. This is the grace and mercy and love and acceptance and redemption that God shows. How can you be a messenger of the gospel? How can you be someone living out the mercy and grace and redemption of God to other people in your life? Not because you're going to be Jesus, but because you become a shadow of who he is and through you they get to see him more. Not not so they will know you as the rescuer, but so they'll know him as the rescuer. That God would use you that they will know Jesus. Because I can tell you in my life, I, I know what it's like to be the outcast. I know what it's like to blow up your life with sin. I know what it's like for everybody to know about your scandal and reject you and want to have nothing to do with you and distance themselves from you. Like I've lived that and it was my fault. And then I know what it's like to have a few people step into your life and say, when everybody else wants to be as far away as they can, we want to be as close as we can. When everybody else says it's not worth it, it's worth it to us. We know it's going to cost time. We know it's going to cost an investment in you emotionally and spiritually. We know what it's going to cost, what people are going to think about us. We don't care. It's worth it. I know what it's like to get to see the grace of God through other people when you are broken and empty and you don't deserve it. And I want to tell you, there's nothing richer you will experience in this life than to know that's how God loves people and then for God to use you to love people that way. For God to use you to look at people and say, no, you're not too far gone for God. And so here I come. You're not too rejected for God. You're not too scandalous for God. You haven't blown it too much for God. In fact, the fact that it's such a mess right now, I want to see what God brings out of this. So let's dive in and see what he does. Let's see how he redeems us because that's what he does. Church, be that type of church. Be that type of follower of Jesus. Live out the Christmas story again and again and again. God coming to redeem people who nobody else would think is worth it. The love and grace and mercy of God as he reveals himself in Jesus through his people. I'm going to pray that for us right now. We're going to worship together. If you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have some pastors and elders and wives down here. If you just want to come and pray on your own, you're welcome to do that. But we'll sing together and pray together. Will you pray with me right now?
Father, I know that I just said a lot and we covered a lot of ground. Will you please take the muddled things that I said and all the things that we crammed in and by your spirit will you speak to our hearts and tell us the things you really want us to hear and really want us to know and by the power of your spirit will you please keep changing us and making us into your people making us more like Jesus as we follow him so that when people look at us they see a shadow of who Jesus is and then through us they see Jesus Father please redeem this morning and use it for your purposes redeem our lives and use them for your purposes redeem this church and use it for your purposes and show your great story of love and mercy and grace and redemption in Jesus show it in our lives and show it through our lives show it in this church show it through this church so that you will be made known please Father you do it we can't we trust you to do it we ask you to do it in Jesus name Amen Amen